Cynthia, so lovely to have you back with us again. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure always. Now listen, let's get into it. Phase two of the National Immunization Program kicked off yesterday in eight states. Kedah, Malacca, Penang, Pahang, Sabah, Sarawak, Trunganu, and the Federal Territory of Labuan, focusing on senior citizens and the PWD community. Now those numbers um, seem quite low, which is the 25,000 for the senior citizens and 11,000 for the PWD community. Um, What is the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development doing to encourage a higher registration rate for those groups? So uh, just to clarify, uh, just to explain a bit more about the second phase. So second phase is targeting senior citizens of people age 60 and above. And you mentioned PWT, these are people with disabilities or OKUs, right? And also under phase two, there will be a lot of focus on people with diseases, illnesses like heart disease, diabetes. So all in all, the government plans to vaccinate 9.4 million in phase two, which will likely run until August. So um, 36,000 for the initial period. Yes, it may seem to be quite low, but I think uh, those numbers will catch up in the coming weeks. Uh, Speaking about how do we encourage people to register for vaccination? Because I think right now that's the problem that uh, we are facing to get people to register on MySinJatra. Number one, I think it's not something that can be the sole responsibility of the government. I think we all have to play a part in, yeah. in helping, for instance, our parents, like my mother, she wouldn't know how to register for vaccination. Mm. So, And I, I go home to her quite often. And there are a lot of other folks who do not see their kids and they may find it a bit harder to register for the vaccination. So how do we intensify efforts, right? So that's one, because a lot of them lack knowledge to register. Also, the government and ministry, probably one thing that they need to do more is just to streamline communication uh, to help people understand the vaccines better. So right now, I think we have two or three approved. We have these uh, Pfizer-BioNTech, we have the Sinovac, which will be used in the second phase. So I think there's still a bit of concern about the safety of the vaccines, whether there will be side effects. And so these are the messages that needs to be put across, like streamlined. Uh, to really get people to understand. I think once they they understand better, then they will feel more inclined to register. And I think uh, apart from the government, private hospitals said they they are looking to work with ministry to help register people, like patients, manually uh, to register for vaccination. So I think one thing, one big takeaway we need to look at when it comes to vaccination is that you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the community because as... uh, the faster we can achieve herd immunity, the faster we can get on to our lives. So we need to look at it as a collective effort, not just the government is to do this for you. Cynthia, Malaysia's Transport Ministry is looking into creating a regulatory body to oversee pee-hailing services, which involves the delivery of parcels and food items using motorcycles to protect the welfare of the riders. So why are pee-hailing riders not protected, unlike e-hailing drivers? Well, at this point in time, we simply do not have a specific body or regulation to oversee the sectors. And it's a really big sector. Some, I believe, 60,000 to 100,000 people are being employed in this sector. So they deliver food, parcels, using motorcycles, and it has grown tremendously during the MCO. Mm-hmm. So having a regulatory body, which we do not have and is being uh, proposed, will help to do two things. Number one is protect riders. I'm not sure if you guys have seen a report recently by Miros about riders who got into accidents in last year. There were about six recorded accidents. These are recorded ones involving Mm -hmm. pee-hailing riders and 17 resulted in fatalities. 
So okay. that's one, protecting the riders. Uh, secondly, uh, it's also to ensure the safety of uh, road users. You know, when, when you have policies in place and regulations, we know how riders are, especially bike riders, and how mm. they can be quite reckless yeah. um, on the road. So having an agency, a body to, to look at this is uh, a first step towards I guess in a way, professionalizing the industry. So what we have seen with e-hailing. And uh, I think this is not something new as well, I have to point out, because this idea of having a, a, a new regulation to manage e-hailing was actually mooted last last year. I think it was August by the Deputy Transport Minister. So the regulations, what it essentially does is something similar like what we are doing with e-hailing, like Grab, right? I think Grab drivers, they need to obtain this thing called PSV, which is the uh, public... Yes. Yeah. Service people license. They will also have to undergo health screening, mm-hmm. and I believe they have insurance coverage. So I think what we're trying to do, if we are going to do this, is to extend the same kind of protection uh, for P hailing riders. So yeah, but Cynthia, remember when they did the PSV thing many, many, many months ago? Then suddenly all the e hailing drivers were like, "I'm not going to apply for this," and the the number there was so much confusion and there was people were upset about that a lot of e-hailing drivers decided not to do it they have to pay extra and whatnot so how did how would this work for e-hailing drivers because these guys are on bikes right yeah and then they're mainly giggers it's a gig that they do they're not going to be paid as much right so yeah it's gonna be a tough one i i the government definitely needs to consult the industry uh but then who represents the industry right so there's no collective like, i see okay okay right, right. So the role of agency would take this on then? Also, it's a go-between. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how they're going to implement it. It's probably the same like how they did with e-hailing. So back then, e-hailing didn't really have... I don't even know if they have a representative now of like e-hailer, I mean, e-hailing drivers. Right. But I think right. similar, similar measures would probably need to be taken so that it's uh, better regulated also. Mostly, I think it's more for safety for both users and also the uh, the drivers. So I think this was drafted. Uh, this was proposed last year, and I think it's been a delay. So, but I think I think it's a good step. I think it's a good step towards just regulating and, and just understanding how big it's in the industry, who's in it, and better protection and welfare for those in the gig economy, which is something I think we've been overlooking for the past few years. Fresh graduates deserve better and more honourable starting salaries upon entering the labour market. Citing data from the Higher Education Ministry, most new graduates earn between 2,001 ringgit and 2,500 ringgit from 2014 to 2019. However, fresh graduates last year were mostly earning 1,001 to 1,500 ringgit which is crazy. Yeah. So looking at these numbers, it does seem like the pandemic was the main reason for the drop or rather maybe excuse in salary for fresh grads. How likely would it be for starting salaries to improve once we have a you know better control at least of the COVID-19 outbreak? This story is something that we have covered extensively on, on Astro Awani and uh, students graduating into minimum wage and that's quite a bleak outlook for yeah. that, right? Yeah. Well, Malaysia's minimum wage is 1,200 ringgit. And I think the bigger question right now if it's this is just a, a temporary decline due to the pandemic, or uh, is this a sign of a deep problem that we have in our in our labor market? So, and a lot of analysts that we have spoke with said that is this growing proportion of graduates graduating into this one point one thousand to one and a half thousand ringgit pay tier is not solely a result of the disruptions that we're seeing from COVID nineteen. So it actually reflects a larger problem. Number one is limited wage growth. So if you look at the past 10 years, 
I'm going to quote a report from uh, KRI, which is Kazana. The real median monthly wages nationally have only risen by 3.3% from 2010 to 2019. And when you adjust for inflation, the real starting monthly salary for most fresh graduates have actually declined mm. compared to 10 years ago. So there is very um, limited wage growth. That's that one, one problem here. And secondly, there's just not enough uh, jobs for skilled jobs for graduates. So many companies in Malaysia, they have not really moved up the value chain. They have not, you know, uh, they're still relying on a lot of uh, unskilled labor. So we have a lot of graduates graduating, but there's a shortage of skilled work compared to the number of graduates entering the job market. And this leads to unemployment. So you have stagnant wage growth and unemployment plus the pandemic and it's exacerbated the situation. Mm. So when something bad happens like a downturn economy, it's very likely that the young workers are generally the first one to be let go during a downturn because they have experience. So they take any jobs they can find. And maybe to a certain extent, there has been some, uh, we can't deny that there's severe impact to the economy, right? COVID-19, a lot of industries are, are facing difficulties, you no know, cost measures. So, but if you're unemployed, you take whatever you can get. Right. Yeah. So it goes back down to the, look, at, at least you're pulling in a salary. But then the thing is, can you even like pay mm. for basic things with that really really small salary because that's lower than what I got back when I first graduated and that was already very very low I mean I remember when I first graduated uh, I was earning about two plus yep. and I believe it's still somewhat the same right now for fresh graduates I mean even lower so mm. It's, it's very depressing. I mean, for somebody who's in university graduating and to think like, oh my God, I'm just going to graduate to minimum wage. Yeah. So there is certainly a lot of things that needs to be done. So if you look at last year, the government did come up with measures like the um, subsidy, wage subsidy to help companies tie over, you know, during the pandemic. But I think long term, there really needs to be a, a look into policies to help graduates have a decent grad, I mean, salary when they enter the workforce. So a major international bank here in Malaysia is choosing to exit retail banking in Malaysia and 12 other markets across two regions, namely Asia and Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Um, the National Union of Bank Employees General Secretary Jay Solomon has expressed concern for this international bank's employees. What's going to become of all of their staff? Well, we do not have words from uh, the bank yet as to you know, what are their plans for you know the retrenchment plan for their staff but uh just to put things into perspective malaysia is one of the 12 markets it exited like you mentioned earlier so it's just not just malaysia it's australia indonesia south korea philippines thailand vietnam so it's part of a bigger strat- strategy from the bank to exit its consumer or retail banking in this truck market it's part of a uh, consolidation cost cutting measures or whatever that they we're doing but it's it's isolated. I feel like this is an isolated incident. It, 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 I don't think it translates into a bigger exodus of banks leaving Malaysia. It's just yeah, a corporate strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So what I know uh, from reading is that the bank currently has a workforce of over 5,000 employees in Malaysia. And based on latest news report this morning, they did not declo- disclose any retrenchment plan. Uh, there was a statement to Malaysia Reserve, they, uh, citing one of the uh, staff to say that it said that they will keep everyone updated as they go along. So still a developing story, but but uh, I, I believe that we will find out more in days to come. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about it, how it works, right? Because having been in that industry before, that means the guys selling credit cards and housing loans and everything, they, they, they will never 
be able to be absorbed into the corporate side, uh, corporate banking side. So that's that's quite a lot of stuff because they're the ones the on the ground, right, most of the time. But what we understand is, is this uh, exit is in the con- consumer retail banking. So I believe this bank will still retain its like for their capital markets. And yep, yep. So I think that one that one stays. It's just the uh, institutional business. That's right. That's the word I was going for. Institutional business banking is still it must still stay in Malaysia so far. That's what I understand. They have the group solution center in KL and Penang, and they have come up with a statement saying that those hubs are still very important for the bank. So may not affect all 5,000 employees of this particular bank. So we'll find out more in the coming days. But yep, I, think, yep. I think there's this question whether like, oh, is this a start of banks leaving Malaysia? I, I do not think so, honestly, because um, I don't think, number one, there will be any major impact on the country's banking industry. It's, like I said, more of an isolated case due to the overall strategy of the group. So I don't see it as a trend. Uh, if anything, disruption that we will see in the banking industry would come from non-banks, you know, startups, fintechs, and um, digital banks, which are disrupting not just Malaysia globally, banks globally. So this this is the bigger trend that we're seeing in terms of disruption. Right, the Transport Ministry is mulling a major upgrade on Station Central Kuala Lumpur or KL Central, the first since it opened for operation in 2001 to cater to the increasing number of commuters and traffic volume in the area. 20 years they haven't done it's anything, crazy, really. right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you can tell, right? <laughs> uh, being KL's busiest and biggest transportation hub, how would these upgrading works affect the 200,000 daily commuters? Well, Number one, I think the first uh, keyword here is smiling. So the idea, <laughs> right? So uh, what transport minister said, Datuk Sri Dr. Wee Kar Siong, he said a facelift is needed. It's timely, as uh, the hub has exceeded its capacity, which is 100,000 commuters daily. So he said, on, a, on average, before the pandemic, commuters would reach up to I mean, number of commuters would reach up to 200,000. So that's like double the capacity that it can take. But right now, uh, he says is about seventy seventy thousand commuters every day. So quite still quite significant. So yes, uh, certainly about time to upgrade the station. Um, he says the ministry is planning and working on creating more tracks and services to handle more passengers mm-hmm. to make it more convenient. But um, adding more tracks means you have to do a lot of construction work. Correct. And the significant population around KL Central area, you no know, brick fields, and also. Mm-hmm. Um, estimated about 100,000 people. So a lot of planning still needs to go in place to to start that. Hence, I said, no, Marling, they're talking about it, but it will probably take some time before it materialize. Right. Yeah. So how this upgrade affect the, the current concession agreement? And are we likely to see, you know, an increase in transport costs once completed? Because, you know, new tracks, possibly more yeah, yeah. new trains as well. Yeah. Well, that one, I think early to tell i mean uh, frankly i mean this is just ideas being floated right now so i wouldn't be able to comment on that but um i think what we strong said that they are not in a hurry to upgrade it so it will okay. wait and see. so that's that's one that we do not know yet whether it will affect our the prices for train tickets okay mm. i think as it is right now it's not the cheapest to ride a train in the world uh, if you look at it the mrt mm. the monorail There's LRT now they're extending the ETS and then there's another line that they're planning to bring in and, and whatnot. But at seventy thousand, twenty years, it has nothing has changed. I think at least what we can do is we don't have international visitors at the moment. But I think when when things open up again, 
I think it needs to look a bit better. 20 years, though. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely time. I mean, um, we have more train lines now, real tracks, you know, we have the MRT3 coming up, the ECRL as well. The Correct, East yes. Slightly go through KL Central. So definitely more capacity coming through. And I think if they want to do it, they probably should do it like right now because it takes, it's not going to take a year or two years, but we take five, 10 years for an yeah. upgrade. By then, it will be 30 years since KL Central's been built. So. My goodness. Gosh, can you imagine? When's the last time you guys took a train at KL Central? Not KL Central, but I take the MRT quite often. I really like the MRT. Yeah. I haven't, but only because I'm not nowhere near a line and so right, like right. what was you know this past year and a half almost true, yeah. you know uh not gone anywhere but i I've, i take the train very 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 often and then once it's, you walk over to the mrt or the whatever train i sometimes do the walk over i've taken a ktm commuter and everything i'm just i'm just saying that i think um it's kind of jam-packed and then looking at how things are right now it's not really conducive for for safe mm, for sops you know right. what i mean yeah true 